And good morning or good afternoon, everyone. This is Nelson, Nelson J. Zambrano here, another episode of Investing in America, where we talk about how to invest in U.S. real estate. And we leave a certain number of episodes where we interview entrepreneurs in other areas. Uh, I'm very fortunate today to have Stefan, Stefan Tetzvetkov. Um, and I know I mispronounced that because I always know you as Stefan. So um, let me tell you a little bit about our guest, okay? Uh, first of all, he is what you could call a smart guy, okay? Uh, he graduated from uh, Columbia University, also American University in Bulgaria. Uh, very tough to get in, I can tell you all right now, both schools. Um, he was also on the derivatives and hedge fund um, desk, I'll say, at AXA, which is formerly, which is now called the Equitable. So uh, he was in that world. He is also a first level CFA uh, graduate. And these are very, very tough designations to get, uh, to obtain, and also very difficult environments to maintain yourself in and to thrive in. Um, Stefan's also a dad. He's also a dad as well, has mm -hmm. an eight-year-old daughter. Um, so Stefan has a very unique way of looking at real estate, uh, analyzing real estate. I'm not a smart guy like him. So I call it big data. Stefan says, Nelson, it's not really big data. It's just data. He corrected me on that from before. Um, so I am very happy to have him here. We're very fortunate to have him because he looks at things uh, from a very different mindset, a very different way of looking at it and in real estate and in all business. I think this is applicable across the board as a way to reduce risk. Um, you know, sometimes we look at things as just, hey, the property, the area is good, good enough. And that is sometimes, actually, usually that is good enough. But the way Stefan does, he looks at it as a continual rolling basis, as a continual rolling basis to um, using this data to see what the market is. And then he's got some other, like I said, unique ways. Um, Stefan, it is a pleasure to have you on the show. Pleasure to be here, Nelson. Thanks for inviting me. No, no, it's, it's, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. Stefan, can you, can you kind of give us a bit introduction? You're a financial engineering. Um, I mean, can, can you talk a little bit more about that? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, yes. So I come from like financial engineering career. So financial engineering, like to, for your audience, basically, um, to give an, some summaries, it's basically kind of like math and coding applied to finance. Mm -hmm. So where let's say just finance would be, you know, maybe just like ratios and, you know, kind of arithmetic, you know, of sort, but then um, financial engineering would be a more rigorous, you know, engineering kind of methods. It's a little bit closer uh, along the realm of industrial engineering, even in a sense, mm -hmm. and at some, uh, uh, you know, university departments, including at Columbia, they have it in, in that department and in sort of operations research, they call it. So there hmm. it's like a broader, kind of like a broader engineering discipline that then in finance, you know, found its application. And it's just, uh, um, you know, it's been really trendy in the past and, you know, like methods that are always used. Mm -hmm. um, uh, yeah. So it has some overlappings with data science. It has some, it's basically has like studies of like random processes, they call it like stochastic mm -hmm. processes, um, sort of advanced probability. Um, there is some data analysis. Um, there is a lot of the derivatives kind of like option pricing and stuff is the something that falls in there. Like some people could may have heard about like the black shows, there's a black right. shows, mm -hmm. uh, like model for pricing options is a kind of kind of within this field in a sense. Um, and from there, there are like more advanced methods uh, for doing that. I know they're like Heston, they're like sort of different stochastic models that, that are used like Heston model and, and others. But I mean, this is just like some throwing out some words, um, you know, some terms out there for the audience to, to relate to maybe and like, to understand, but but yeah, it's just like the more sort of the technical finance. I think basically it's you know in finance you have the MBAs, mm -hmm. and then you have sort of two value add kind of spheres: being an MBA on the management side, and then sort of being a 
formed kind of a bit. Mm-hmm. And if you... And by the way, since we have listeners and we're going to do a subtitles in Spanish, quant is quantitative analysis, people, right? Yep, exactly. Yeah. So in the quant is quantitative analysis. And something that Stefan just mentioned, he mentioned Black Scholes. Um, that's Scholes in case anyone goes to Google that. S-C-H-O-L-E-S. Correct. Um, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and uh, um, right. So... So, I mean, those are, those are some things, just some things to mention about the field. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So, like I was mentioning, smart people here. Um, and, and, you know, Stefan's very modest, so he, he's blushing right now. You guys will see it on the video. No, no worries. That's a good sign. Um, how did you get started now in real estate? Because you were or are a person, again, I'll mention AXA, uh, which is now equitable, derivatives, hedging, this is things that you can't really touch. And yet you are also in real estate, which is a big shift. Real estate guys like to touch. They like to, I can see the building. I can see the house. Um, And then how did you get started in real estate? Okay. Um, Yes. So, I mean, the way, like my first kind of interaction with like the physical side of real estate is I purchased uh, a primary residence, fourplex in New uh-huh. Jersey, and I, I moved into one of the units, and I was, you know, kind of living rent-free, basically, you know, like this, uh, to people who are in bigger pockets and other, you know, other forums online, you know, uh-huh. like this, I guess, house hacking strategy, you can call it, but I mean, I wasn't thinking of it like that, I was just looking at, okay, yeah, something that makes sense, uh, so that, um, so that's how I, I got started, but really the underlying motivation is more of I liked uh, how to say I just I always liked income kind of investment uh, Mm -hmm. I always liked arbitrage so that was I was always approaching it and like that and even when like deciding where to continue my career as a private investor and you know entrepreneur I was having like kind of this dilemma should I go into cryptocurrencies but not cryptocurrencies for their oh that they go really up and down and like it's kind of not for the gambling part but more like i was interested in okay i can go into cryptocurrencies because there's so many inefficiencies between uh sort of trading at different prices at different exchanges Mm -hmm. so if one um, automates that um, you know it kind of manages to build a good trading system then that would be um you know like a good market to sort of generate income of sort mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, like in a in a kind of market neutral way where you're not you know gambling on where the market is gonna go and uh, so it was kind of really between that and then in real estate there is a you know a comparative dynamic where at time zero of purchasing a property there could be some kind of pricing efficiency or there could be what real estate people call value add Improve the property kind of through your labor or, uh, you know, certain but through the upgrades and so forth. Yeah, certain, yeah, be it physical, physical, regulatory, or, you know, other, um, you know, whichever other could be, whichever improvements you, you succeed to do on a, on a given uh, property. So, um, so yeah, so that those were, you know, attractive features. Like to me, like something real estate is okay, it's a physical asset. That's a, a little bit of a challenge for me to overcome, mm-hmm. but I need to, you know, handle, um, you know, like all the issues that come from that. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. But, um, uh, but um, you know, it's just um, in spite of it being a physical asset, it has, it's a financial asset mm-hmm. or not, it's a, I would say like it's an uh, investment asset Call it. It has like, to me, like the ideal properties of so, income and efficiency and all that. So, Stefan, there's a recurring theme you talk about is you're looking for the inefficiencies. Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I and mean, I do that's my yeah, exactly. That's why I'm kind of in the field. That's my approach, which mm-hmm. by the way makes it maybe a little bit interesting or different to how other investors approach it. Because on one side in real estate, they feel inherently every investor, most professional investors, like they re- are really well oriented towards discovering undervalued properties so to mm-hmm. say um and they do it really well 
but they uh, waiting well is slightly different at least to how I do it at least in the smaller kind of the residential space versus the commercial space there is more of a focus of there's somehow an assumption that you have to you know undergo a full kind of or like a but you know some kind of renovation to to achieve this uh, you know price uh, potential you know mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's, um, while the way I look at it is much broader, so I include that, I have that consideration also sort of this renovation, value add or renovation, you know, gains that, I mean, it, there could be an inefficiency or it could be just being compensated for your work. So that's a bit of a question there, but, um, but, also, um, but also I look at it broader where, okay, this inefficiency can stem from a series of reasons. So there can be an illiquidity, market illiquidity. So if we take the Northeast, for example, and the Midwest, so those are broadly speaking, the majority of many, the big share of markets, they are depressed now with the exception mm -hmm. of certain cities. So if you go to like, um, I don't know, different like suburban areas in Midwest and Northeast, it's mainly depressed markets. There's uh, reducing population, mm -hmm. etc. Now, that's not good on the appreciation side, but respectively, those that's illiquidity. Now, if there is illiquidity, um, it could, could, one second, Stefan, could you go through that? What is illiquidity again? Could you just go through that again? Yes, yes. So, the li liquidity, I mean, in a and, and, and one second, Stefan, and the reason I ask again, we're going to be doing subtitles, folks, in Spanish, yeah, sure. folks, when people think of real estate, they automatically think of real estate as being a little bit on the illiquid side. Correct. Because yeah. unlike yeah. stocks, which you can just sell like that or a mutual fund. Um, mm -hmm. So could you go more to your definition of illiquidity? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're raising a good question because yeah, re re really every piece of real estate is illiquid. That's correct. So it's not so much of, uh, yeah, transactionally, there is illiquidity to currently to every piece of real estate unless like with blockchain and other kind of methods that improves, you know, over time. But, uh, but currently pretty much to every piece of real estate. But what I'm referring to more like lack of transaction volume, you know, in those like lack of, um, you know, demand and um, sort of the, like many days, property staying many days mm -hmm. on the market, you know, like this kind of like slow, slow real estate market. So it's um, illiquid even for a, a, well, sort of, Transactionally, well, not transactionally, uh, but um, how to say like so sales, the bottom of sales, the number of days on market, and so, those, those measures. So, Stefan, to give an example, you would be saying that the Northeast is more illiquid than South Florida. Oh yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. definitely. Okay. Because okay. Uh, yeah, that would be. Um, I mean, yeah, definitely. So those, those are. Non-appreciating markets generally, you know, are markets that are not, they're not experiencing strong, strong growth. There isn't strong investor demand or, mm -hmm. you know, owner, kind of owner-occupied demand. demand. So, so, yeah, they're less desirable markets. So one would take on a risk in the sense of that, you know, the risk of, um, yeah. Mm -hmm. But there is an aspect where then the price that you pay may not be the market price. And this is one thing I kind of look for. Right. Because then most people or some people, let's say a contrarian, not most people would say, well, if it's less desired, excuse me, let's use, use your terminology, illiquid, then mm -hmm. there are some macroeconomic factors like yeah. there's just not that growth. Yep. So you're not going to have the appreciation. Um, and obviously the extreme example is Detroit, right? Highly illiquid. That's extreme, extreme. Um, so how do you make up for that? Because to me, that's another, that's a big chunk of risk, right? That is a big chunk of risk. Absolutely. Correct. Yeah. I mean, the way pretty much even other investors approach it, like those sort of even co colloquially or how to say those markets become like markets for flips and stuff like that. But, uh, but to me, it's really, I, if I invest in the Northeast, I know, okay, I, sh I'm never gonna, I don't want to pay the market price like ever now, unless it had some county in New Jersey or, you know, or New York city, or at least before COVID and et cetera, then that would be more of like kind of paying the market price since those are, you know, more efficient markets. COVID. Mm -hmm. 
but um, but yeah, if it's other areas in Northeast or Midwest, yeah, you invest for very high cash flow and at time zero, if the property is turnkey, you still need to discover a property that is mispriced, even if it's turnkey. So you're not going to be, for example, if you want to say that you like kind of like the BRRR strategy. That mm -hmm. and, that, and, and by the way, for folks, yeah. the acronym BR is it buy, rehab, rent, repeat, right? That's what it stands yeah, for? Rent, buy, rehab, rent, I guess refinance, repeat. Refinance, repeat, okay, yeah. Exactly, and um, yeah, so that's like a strategy where, okay, I think it's really underscoring this kind of a bit flips mentality that is in mm -hmm. US, which is great one because you, you improve the housing stock after all this way, which is an important mm -hmm. function. But BRRRR is essentially a flip strategy where nevertheless you refinance kind of like it's this it's really it's really the same as a flip except you don't sell it but you refinance and you try to take out your full investment potentially or part of your investment and you're sort of pursuing infinite return and when we say infinite return it just means okay you invest it if you um if you gain one door but you invested zero then a door it's an infinite return yeah divided divide by zero is infinite so the, so that's all and um uh, in um, so in the context of what I call the, an illiquid market, the same comparative strategy to BRRR could be achieved without renovation in theory. So, for example, a property I purchased upstate now um, in, in upstate New York. In upstate, uh, yeah, I'm okay. sorry, in upstate New York, upstate New York currently. Uh, so I, it's turnkey. It has a very high cap rate of uh, about twenty. You know, even more. These and are amazing cap rates. Amazing. Yeah, it's, a, it's a low price point. So that's the flip side. So you need to get many of those or you know, that's kind of the challenge. Um, but then, um, yeah, it's an amazing cap rate. And it is that that cap rate is in a safe area because now those kind of, you know, it's a little bit like optics and like um, seemingly high cap rates exist in many cities that those cities are dangerous, etc. But that's not the case here. This is just physically dangerous areas yeah, physically right. right but that's um so that you kind of need to filter all those out and what mm -hmm. you're looking for is just um just uh, areas that okay they they are favorable in their um you know let's say median household income and their um crime rates and they would end up being sort of um suburbs of for example that's like in a suburb within the the greater capital region, let's mm -hmm. say around Albany, Albany, um, you know, and it's uh, it's just uh, uh, essentially not the the cap rate is high because prices are depressed, but prices can be depressed for different reasons other than that the neighborhood is an unsafe neighborhood, which mm -hmm. is kind of what most investors kind of you know like assume or like even I would assume. Right, right. Very high cap rates in very nice kind of safe areas, you know, like nice green areas. And they could have high cap rates. Now, they wouldn't be high income nice green areas, but they would could be sort of lower mid-income mm -hmm. working class. Nice. Okay. Okay. So you would describe these as C areas for most investors. We've got the A, B, C, D. D being war zone, rough. A being luxury, would you say these are B or C areas? I would say B or C both can be, yeah. Mm -hmm. B mm -hmm. as well. I okay. Pretty much. I would describe them as uh, yeah, median median household income can be like about fifty thousand, which may sound low to some people, but it's kind of like a decent. I feel like it's a decent decent investment measure for kind of working class neighborhoods that are never going to stay. Well, you know, a lot of folks forget um, is that across the United States, that's considered middle. Yeah. I mean, yeah, very, yeah. Yeah. right. I mean, when people throw in New York City, Chicago, South Beach, Miami, yeah. uh, San Francisco, it messes it up. But the yeah. other, you know, 45 states, not even yeah. cities, but states, Yes. A lot of folks can live very well on that. I mean, that's a that's a medium, you know, and well is of course a relative term. Well, yeah, yeah, and you exactly, and you make a good point. It varies across regions and etc. But but I mean, just to make it shorter, the the point that I wanted to make is in uh, one way is uh, if you have a 
for whether you refer to C liquidities, you can take out all your investments sort of like in BRRR without doing by purchasing a turnkey property. And that's what I'm, what I'm actually doing with this property, just because I believe the price that I purchased it that is below the appraisal. So, okay, if that's, uh, um, you know, 25% below the appraisal or the appraisal is 33% over the price, it's you basically refinance out of the deal and you take out all your investment, you also have a high cash flow. Yeah. You get no appreciation. Then you mm -hmm. get no appreciation. You get no, no, no appreciation? None, I mean, you do not have a favorable expectation for appreciation oh. in those markets. Now with, um, yeah, so that's the flip side. So you're very aware that you're compromising appreciation, but if you're able to purchase without labor, you know, where you're purchasing turnkey undervalued properties that at time zero, you capture equity mm -hmm. and you accumulate it deal after deal and you also are building up cash flow. And I think that's another thing you asked me before to touch. Uh, so I hear what, like in the big multifamily space, I hear like syndicators, mm -hmm. um, you know, who talk about, uh, for example, you know. So, so but Stefan, let's let's just take a step back because this is really good. Um, so basically, what you're saying is, is I'm looking at a funnel, right? So in your funnel, you pick out the northeast, these illiquid markets, right? An illiquid market is strategy on there. right yeah, with the strategy. Not, yeah, it's not it, the only obvious. Yeah, I'm not saying that's the best strategy, but that but that's one. Yeah, exactly. no, no, and, and that's what we're talking about. So I just want to do a little recap and make sure I get it too. So we're looking at illiquid markets, and illiquid means it just moves slower. Let's say than Miami or yeah, something. Transaction so, right, yeah. right. Yeah. And then what you're doing, you go, then you drill dive even deeper and folks, you can't see me, but I'm making a funnel here. The next level is you're looking for nice areas that aren't expensive and that there's some more inefficiencies, keyword, where you want to get a turnkey property. And the turnkey property, by the way, folks, is a property that does not require major lift, major heavy work to it's make it livable. It just move in, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, if it's not turnkey, turnkey, at least stabilized, sort of like the way in multifamily, they call it like stabilized assets. Right. So it's a, it's a yeah. stabilized property. Turnkey generally is a term used in the residential space on the multifamily larger properties uh, over 10 units, over, you know, 10 to, it goes up. It's a stabilized property, which has uh, over 85%, 90% occupancy. So from there, then you're looking at finding these inefficiencies, which it could be uh, anywhere from, let's say, 20% below market value based on uh, an appraisal, which mm -hmm. is a very third-party impartial, well, generally impartial. Mm -hmm. And then you're coming in, you're putting in your down payment. Mm -hmm. However, it's cash flowing right off the bat. You're buying it below market value. So you refinance, pull out your down payment. Mm -hmm. So now your return is infinite. Why? Because there's no more money left in the property or very little. Yep. And now you have cash flow. You're not counting on appreciation, although it's kind of built in there. Um, you're not counting on appreciation. Um, however, your money is out and you've got a great rate of return. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. And you were able to achieve it without a major renovation lift, which is the other which yeah. is which yeah, is beating uh, up the body and the brain to make sure that happens. Yeah, which uh, I assume, like in a, we could take in New York City or even Hudson County, New Jersey, which is where I reside. And I have invested in Hudson County actually, um, you know, quite a bit. And those are my first views are here. Um, but I, um, yeah, but let's say here it would be more of, uh, you know, I would not encounter precisely this kind. It's rare to encounter this inefficiency unless you're looking for more like let's say condo conversion arbitrage is one strategy and like sort of regulatory, some of the regulatory, not the regulatory, but um, uh, how do you call it? Like a legal structure kind of arbitrage of sorts. And arbitrage again, like for the audience, like arbitrage is the term in finance for basically the riskless profit it's not riskless really, but it's more like, okay, I guess it more refers to, you know, taking on having not a unique market price, you know, taking, using, um, you know, certain, um, you know, having some inefficiency in the market and, you know, like looking for opportunities basically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. All right. So then the plan is to accumulate a series of these properties. Accumulate a series of these properties. For personal investment, correct. Right. Yes, yes. Yeah, for personal investment, yeah. And that's like always been like a big question for me now. What sh should I be focusing more like on bigger commercial assets? Um, since you know, like um, I also run my own webinar, I um, sort of have or ought to have like some capital raising capability, which I don't utilize when investing in my own deals. Um, it's just very, I, I feel it's just more profitable at the low end of the price distribution when you are investing your own capital. Well, at least for cash flow, uh, for appreciation, it's the same whether you're at the low end of the price distribution or the higher one, obviously appreciation is the same. I mean, you have a different appraisal method between commercial and residential, but other than that, it's kind of the same. And uh, for value add, it, it's a very good question for value add. Actually, you have uh, you can have a great value added really big deals as well. Mm -hmm. So so I think value add sort of scales. What doesn't scale, in my opinion, is cash flow. And that's one thing where I feel like syndicators, they keep saying they like and syndicators again, like for the audience, like sort of multifamily or self-storage or other commercial real estate um, um, investment managers, right? Mm -hmm. Investment managers where you do a private. Um, you know, private securities exchange uh, commission offering. Um, and usually it could be like based on a single asset or it could also be a private equity fund. And uh, so, so I feel like often one touts the benefits of real estate being cash flow, but I feel in terms of cash flow at bigger, bigger assets, it's very hard to utilize. And, and also like somehow as if it's almost, there is a claim to having more units which does result in operational efficiency, indeed. By the way, from the perspective you have, the, you can have a super, on you know, uh, um, basically living on the on the premises. So that's a that's a big advantage and and all that. But it's so there is some operational efficiency, but it, the way those assets are priced by their income, it's not um, you know you you can see you're not. I mean, yeah more cash flow for the bigger assets and it tends to decline and decline with well i i what i think happens is and i'm gonna kind of cut to the chase on this one yeah. i think ego gets involved ego i have all these assets look at these assets but what are they actually producing cash flow wise so some folks are counting on the appreciation to you know get the you know they're they're basically gambling okay the speculation they're mm -hmm. counting on the appreciation to make up the return there and the cash flow is basically taking care of the mortgage yes, uh, and, and they're hoping yeah. to you know make the big hit the home run on the appreciation versus making base hits on the cash flow right yeah there is i agree with that i agree with that um i don't think it's wrong the way they do it because honestly I was investing in like 100 plus units. I would basically be betting appreciation because I'm not going to get much cash flow out of it, I think, like for the kind of for the assets uh, invested, like for the notion of the deal. Um, but, um, you know, so I think it's the correct approach. Now they do look for value add, obviously. So they're professional investment managers, they know what they're doing. So at time zero, they try to, you know, or like within the first year or et cetera, you know, realize like some improvement to the property profitability, raise the appraisal. And that's, you know, after the primary strategy, I think this is practiced really well within the industry. And it's a great method, you know, that improves also the housing stock in the US to an extent. And, you know, it's just, uh, yeah, it's great. But, but, but yeah, when there is this kind of narrative that, and also investment managers now, they're incentivized by deal size to an extent. Right. The acquisition fee. And that's what I mean. It, it comes down to an ego yeah. thing. Um, yeah, I, but exactly, but this kind of assumption where if you have a, you know, like a five million dollar deal, you're doing better than somebody with a one million dollar deal. That is, to me, silly. It's basically it takes out the whole idea that we are actually trying to be good investors. Well, Very it's ego. You know, it's it's, kind of, it's I, yeah. Stefan. I live on South Beach. Well, I don't yeah. live on South Beach. I go to South Beach a lot. 
Um, somebody says, hey, I own a residential home or I have a $1 million property or investment. And um, compared to someone says, I have a $10 million deal. Um, yeah. The girls are run to the guy with the $10 million deal. Okay. So I, I say it's like an ego thing. It's, a, I it's agree. A, no, yeah. additionally, the whole thing is also additionally, I absolutely agree. Additionally, it's also not apples to apples. It's completely different things. So being an investment manager is a job, you know, obviously where you're utilizing, you're helping other people make return on their assets and you're compensated by fees and cer certain profit sharing right now. Um, that's a completely different thing, like having uh, X million dollars in assets that you manage and having, you know, a small Y million dollars of assets that you actually own, where that small portfolio may generate a higher <laughs> profit for you. And I mean, but it's just a different job. It's just, it's not up. Mm -hmm. if, I, if I was doing investment management, I would also work for, I think, um, basically $5 million deals probably to make sense on some level. And But if I'm doing investment for my own, I would probably work for Small, the smallest possible deal size. Yeah. So, so Stefan, that brings up a good question. I'm going to take a step back. For the deals that you were talking about, those inefficiencies, illiquid markets, what size properties are we looking at? Yeah, so it's really anything from uh, close to zero, COVID, even like anything from like 20K to a million, pretty much. Okay. I, mean, I, I purchased properties between uh, 20K to close to 800k okay is it fourplex duplex triplex five yeah, unit eight unit we, ten units what i think for this kind of search often ends up being fourplexes and i mm -hmm. think the reason is you get some of these uh, economies of scale that scale is multi-family operators call it mm -hmm. like you want more units and for the fixed costs of the property but you still have residential pricing Mm, okay. So the, so the market price does not reflect that that property might have massive income, mm -hmm. and that's in no way reflected in the market price. Mm -hmm. So there's an incredible sort of arbitrage opportunity in currently right there for me for fourplexes, and then yeah, yeah. So that's uh, I think what I mean. Basically, four to six units, kind of like small, okay. you know, like small, small buildings, really. Yeah, and and just for the listeners. Um... When when Stefan is saying market residential pricing, anything up to four units, it's like you're buying a single family home. So you get that yeah. single family pricing, very low down payment, favorable financing. Once you hit five units, down payment goes up anywhere from 15 to 20 to 25 to 30% down payment. You're no longer getting that favorable financing as if you're buying a single family home, which could be anywhere up to 3.5% down payment. Yes, uh, I would say you're you, yeah, for uh, for primary residents indeed. Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean yeah. for investment up to four units is not so that much favorable, by the way, compared to the commercial financing in that sense. But but yeah, you have the different appraisal method. You know, like appraise it appraises by you know similar houses in the area, right? It doesn't appraise by by income. So, so mm -hmm. that's a, I think that's uh, yeah, that's one thing that gives makes all of the fourplexes really profitable because you have a you know, you just have a house that is appraised by its comparables and they just, they don't even, nobody even cares. Like the appraiser doesn't care that that house can have 20 cap. Yeah, yeah. And that it can generate a bunch of income. Yeah, um, essentially, you pay for, you're underpaying for your cap, you know, you're, you get, mm -hmm. you're underpaying for the income of that property, which is, uh, I think that that gives some certain opportunity there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, Stefan, and I could stay on this and we could we could okay. get more into this. I want to move along is you got a podcast. I like your podcast. I like your podcast a lot. Yeah, webinar. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, your, your webinar. Oh, yeah. I call it a podcast. Yeah. Your, your sure, webinar. Sure. So yeah. I, I, I like it. Um, can you tell us more about that? Because I definitely want people to get turned on to this. You know. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So my I run, uh, run a weekly webinar series called Finance Meets Real Estate mm -hmm. on Tuesdays. So we run live events. So that's where we are not uh, so much a podcast. Uh, we more do like live events and YouTube basically. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah. So we have like a live audience every Tuesday, like six thirty p.m. Eastern time, and we invite uh, guest lecturers. 
Uh, the topics that I mostly focus on within real estate are um, investment management and technology to an extent. So I try to bring in like blockchain, uh, other property technology, mm-hmm, like some mm-hmm. startups and um, investment management, pretty much um, syndicators, like real estate syndicators. Um, so that's like, those are some topics. Uh, I'm trying to, my goal is I want to attract more people like myself from finance mm-hmm. to realize that real estate is, I know what I would call really a finance person's sort of dream playground <laughs> where, you have, yeah, yeah, where you have the perfect, you know, like, you know, application of uh, like genuine, like how to say no gambling um, you know, like being a good investor, you know, like mm-hmm. sort of the Warren Buffett way, way, way kind of fine, if you will. You right. know, it might sound silly, but um, but it's just, um, you know, like where you have the, the best arbitrage opportunities, you have the best income, and you have it on a levered basis. Mm-hmm. On top of that, you leverage five times or whatever, four times. So, hmm. so that's like, that's kind of my goal. I just try to attract like other, you know, you know, maybe like an elite, some like analytical people to realize actually it's a great, it's a great. Yeah, field. other. No, and, and it's a, it's a great podcast. Uh, uh, I love it. Uh, the people that you bring on, um, your focus on the analytical side, the rigor of that uh, that's involved. And that person in the background is my, my daughter. She's yeah, the yeah. big mop of hair. That's her yeah, as, yeah. as she comes by. Um, not that she's uh, going to school here. So. Stefan, we've talked about um, what kind of data is available for people, uh, for them to use to kind of do what you're doing. Um, What kind of data is available? Okay, so there, um, I can call it like two streams of data. So on the market side, it's government. It's it's basically, in the US, there's this big advantage. A lot of the data is actually very nicely provided by governmental agencies like the uh, federal Housing Finance Agency has price histories. Mm-hmm. Um, also, Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis has some of them. You know, we have also the Census Bureau for a lot of statistics as well. Um, on the income side, there is the Bureau of Economic Analysis. So, uh, so Stefan, one, one second. We're going through a lot of resources, and this is yes. really good. This is all vetted, non, well, I guess you could call it third party data. Um, yeah, it's a good, and because you have people say, well, the government can't be trusted and, you know, my rights and all this stuff. Um, no, this data can't be trusted. Um, could you, how exactly are you using it? Or maybe we can make that a podcast episode and you walk us through one or two examples. You know, we'll do a shared screen. So maybe yeah. we'll do that. Maybe, Stefan, would you be okay to do that? Yeah, of course. Absolutely. Of course. Um, Folks, this is going to be a first time ever. Okay. Stefan's going to work through the process um, because we do have a lot of data. And I love how Stefan can use, again, I use a funnel as as it to not manipulate the data, but using the data itself as a filter, Mm -hmm. as a series of filters to come up with this product at the end of this is what you need. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. Um, yeah, so that's on the market side. And I think like housing supplies, like with Census Bureau and et cetera, et cetera. But these are just like general, like market statistics and like, you know, stuff that can help you like pick markets, quotes, right? It's mm-hmm. pretty, pretty standard kind of approach, but it's so available. It's free data and, and that now on the property side is nevertheless more complicated because on the property side, you either need to purchase the data or you need to sort of, take a, you know, in a sense, a contractual risk with like different websites where you, you could, you're able to access their data, obviously manually. If you decide to access it in an automated fashion that technically violates that website's terms of service, you can obviously not resell that data. Um, You know, I can probably not show that part. Well, well, okay. Well, 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 Stefan, let me ask you a question. What if I had a friend or I was a broker? I could use MLS. Would wouldn't that suffice? Yeah, but then yeah, for the MLS, it's there's then so many different MLSs. It's really fragmented. 
you're gonna it's gonna be really hard to get a lot of different mm. even if you're within one state you want to get let's say the state of new jersey you have to go to i don't know 30 mls or 25 or whatever they are um it's just it's it's not very easy on on, on the selling easy. side to, to buy a property to get that in to, to for the deal flow yeah the, for the deal flow that's the real challenge that's the real job I'd say the market side is really easy. You just do your market studies at once. You kind of set them as a process. You have it fixed. It's also free data. It's very easy. For the property analytics, it's hard because you, yeah, you need to, uh, you need property data to be able to do that. And that's not, that's, uh, how do you do it? I and mean, that's not something I can, you need to pay for it. Paying for it, you can also sign up for certain services like List Hub is a vendor. Mm-hmm. That's that. I think they, I'm not sure what was the charge for MLS, but it would quickly add up. Even if you are like an investor within like a three hour drive from yourself, it's going to be mm. quite a bit of MLSs to cover. Right, right. Get all the data. And it's, um, yeah, it's really a difficult question. That's more like if you make a startup and you raise maybe some money and you're paying for all those overhead charges and, and so forth. If you use it for yourself, now the reality is over the internet, what happens is you have all the big thing now, in my opinion, is that we have all this data freely available on the internet about properties, about you know, markets, etc. But it's this, but you're a lot of the time you're not allowed to use it in an analytical way. Mm-hmm. You're not allowed to access it in an automated manner. So so they want to show you this data, but they don't necessarily but but it's a different use case, which makes sense actually. It's a different use case, even though the data is made available, can you actually, you know, make sense of it in a, in a bigger way? Can, can you make it, can you make it into a usable tool? Yeah, and making it into a, well, to be able to like, so you're allowed to access, for example, if you use an example, one a single property listing, you have a property listing on zero, let's say on zero. Okay, you mm-hmm. can access that property listing but are you gonna be able to, but but you but to access five thousand of them? You know, it's a different question. Right, because you need the aggregate of data for the it to make sense. Exactly. I mean, that's a challenge, and this is something that's how do I say it's sort of dependent on the terms of service of each website. Mm. Now, technically, even if it's automated, you could do it in all kinds of different ways that are sort of compliant. You know, like you could, uh, I don't know time your requests even or whatever like have it sort of like more like a human user because in the end it's all like really you could in theory have people (laughs) extract the data for you right but the question is just for me is like i cannot manually look at listings and again like to most investors they care about off market now on off on off market side and um and yeah and so uh, Which, which is another inefficiency right there yeah, now the off-market is very interesting, actually, for big apartment communities, like for people who are doing like 50, 100 units. It's interesting because on off-market, you can get data from places like apartments.com. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to post an article on uh, towards data science on that, actually, where with apartments.com data, you can um, kind of price, like kind of rank off-market apartment communities by their relative value-add potential. Mm-hmm. You can see because on partners.com you're able to get what the rents are. You can get like what the average rent should be by each neighborhood. So you can mm-hmm. try to look for some pattern of you know rents being below market. You can you look for some pattern, and but additionally, there they have all those extra information. They have pet feed, they have like this other income besides rent, other income information, and they have some of the expenses information as well. Mm-hmm have like how sometimes how much of the utilities are built to tenants and stuff like that right i mean again apartments.com is a cost star resource so so this is an approach that one can use to kind of even manually like try to gauge okay within your market if you're for example in Louisville, kentucky your target market or something there is let's say 50 apartment communities above 50 units let's mm-hmm. say from mm-hmm. 50 apartment communities you can get a sense of which ones to focus on. What if there are, let's say, like two or three of them that now mostly maybe you don't care because, okay, you could do direct mail either way to all of them since there's so few. 
Um, but but still, it's good to be able to know if there are like certain um, you know golden opportunities that you can maybe be following up for years in your market. That you know that if you do buy this building, that's going to be a, a great return, and you know mm -hmm. it's not before even you know when it's not even on the market yet. So so this kind of analysis is good for off market data. You can also pull all kinds of like county records, of course, and. Um, it's really a lot of it, and in property analytics, it really comes down to having good estimates for rent and good estimates for market value. Mm -hmm. Another thing is automated valuation models are another thing. So you could write in Python or whatever. You could even write your own automated valuation model, and you can. Uh, and, and and by the way, Python is a coding a coding language. Yes. Yeah, so yep. Yeah. Python is a well. Python is a coding language that in recent years had a, in recent years had a huge spike compared to all the other languages. And basically, it it's kind of like you know becoming you know like really so much more popular than everything else because it's very simple in a way and uh, mm -hmm. um, it's just like very easy to write code in a like in a single line. You can you know press so, a lot of I, stuff. I, I tell you, Stefan, this is an amazing, you know, how you think, how you, you know, I've kind of let time get away from us here. Uh, I'm fascinated by how you do things and, and how you're doing these analytics and how you're using the information. Um, you know, we're kind of, you know, I, I'd really, and I value your time. So maybe we, we should look at maybe making this a, a two-part um, episode here. Um, sure. A, a quick question. Well, actually, we, we kind of hit on that one, which is how can a person use this data to target, go after distressed owners? Uh, is, is there a way to do this that you're discover, discovering on how to use data to identify and target market to distressed owners? Yes. Uh, now, I... That's something I haven't done, to be honest, uh, but it's, uh, yeah, I think it's just having the approach of that a lot of, a lot of information is available online, so you can access county records, you can access, and then there's mm -hmm. also social media and Google, so there could be, you need to just, um, yeah, identify what are some predictors of property distress and, and try to see, uh, you know, and you could then scrape this data, where scrape, web scraping is sort of accessing the HTML, uh, kind of like the HTML of a, of a page that get, goes out on the browser, mm -hmm. you know, the way it's delivered to the browser, let's say. Um, and then you just access, uh, you know, like different elements and you can sort of like get, you know, let's say from Facebook or Pinterest or whatever, you could uh, get some, some information. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, so that's, uh, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know. Distress property is something I haven't looked at personally. But if you you have to think like as a human expert, let's say on the field, like a person who is um, looking at it, like what are indeed some predictors of distress, classify them, mm -hmm. and then try to um, you know scrape and like, sort of get data from different county records and Google. Right, right, right. There could be information even on social media on some of that potentially. Um, mm -hmm. I, not specifically that's not something that i have specifically worked into yet okay okay well i'm sure you're gonna come up with a way stefan wanted to ask you um what what are your kind of goals for the next couple of years you know wanted to, yes. to get to that uh yeah so for myself so i am uh still building my like personal portfolio pipeline so i want to um, you know, like reach like a certain cash flow. I want to like certain equity from that. And I, uh, yeah, I'm looking to start a fund that mm. may combine like a like private equity fund uh, that may be combining different uh, deal sizes potentially, or that may have like a more defined strategy where let's say the strategy could be uh, you know, West and South, uh, let's say Southern markets uh, uh, appreciation strategy mandate, sort of like a defined mandate, but not doing a single property syndication, but more like having a mandate and like putting like flexibly being able to put like different deal sizes within that fund. Mm -hmm. 
I don't know. That's one thing I, I wanted to, to try. Or it can be like Northeast Arbitrage Fund. So that would or, be like a blind pool? Well, yeah. And I know like people think, okay, it's harder. If you don't have enough experience, it's harder to capital raise like this. I mean, it depends. I think if the fund has a very well-defined mandate and the the returns are like very clearly explained i think people would i think if you start like a northeast arbitrage fund and you are showing that you can have like 20 caps in every property then i don't even if you don't have much experience people are going to invest in that i, I mm-hmm. personally believe and then because you have like a very clear you have a very clear objective there um uh, yeah yeah it's like a blank uh, blank pool and tokenized as well so then tokenized Probably like I hear it seems like Algorand, the Algorand blockchain seems to be the most, um, I think the most applicable to doing like cash flow distributions to people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so yeah, so I mean, some kind of tokenized fund of sort. It could also be a single asset, could be- could Like be a syndication. Yeah, okay. like a, but, but it's more, for somehow I'm thinking more the line across the lines of a tokenized funds, because then I could, put in some smaller deal sizes also in there and like try to raise the returns this way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. So fun in the future. Um, Stefan, like I said, we're, I want to make sure we, we kind of stare in our time uh, hack right here. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, it looks like we're going to, we're going to do it two part because this has been great. Um, Stefan, how can people reach out to you? How can they get, I, I call it a podcast. It's the webinar. Uh, how can people reach out? And it's a meetup group too. Finance meet real estate. How can people reach out to it? How can they log into it? Time, channel, everything. How can people get in? Yep, yep. Uh, yes. So it's on meetup. Finance meet real estate on meetup. Um, Tuesday at six thirty p.m. are our live webinars. Uh, webinar recordings get posted on YouTube. So it's my name, Stefan Svetkov. Dash Finance Meets Real Estate on YouTube is our channel. Uh, make sure to subscribe there and my website on the 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 date the market analytics side mm-hmm. is uh, nvanalytics.com so n-v-e-n-v-v-y with a double v um, analytics.com uh, so you can get a report there as well and something we didn't talk about yet i published data on overvalued markets if you want to know if your county or state is currently overvalued or undervalued or fairly valued that's that's the, the place to go so okay okay well stefan i really appreciate it um i know we got a little bit off because what you do is so interesting um just a little bit of background but my background is military we used to go on a lot of different missions and data and intelligence was everything was was everything to us so when you're talking about using this data and how um, I, I used to have a saying, you know, I don't care where the bad guys are going. I need to be waiting for them when they show up. I want to be waiting for them when they show up, not chasing them yep. because I'll never catch them, uh, no matter how much technology. But if I can be waiting for them, then that's a different story. Um, so that, that, that was a, a, a fantastic um, thing. So, Stefan, again, I want to say thank you very much. Um, and everyone, our listeners, this is Nelson, Nelson Jason Brown here at Investing in America, where we talk about how to invest in U.S. real estate and have incredible interviews with entrepreneurs um, like Stefan right here. This in the month of June, we'll be launching our YouTube channel and a lot of other things. Also, uh, we'll be having in Spanish as well for our investors in Latin America. And um, please follow me on Spotify, YouTube channel. When it goes up, hit follow, hit subscribe on iTunes as well. And, um, and also we'll be on Instagram too. So Stefan, again, I want to say double and triple. Thank you. Thank you. Okay.